0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. Most cases in the criminal system never make it to trial. More than 90% of cases, in fact, are resolved through a negotiated agreement or a plea deal. Berkshire County District Attorney Andrea Harrington is participating in a unique initiative called the Plea Tracker Project, run by the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke Law School. The plea tracker project aims to bring more transparency to what actually happens when those pre deals are negotiated, and to make sure these discussions are being conducted equitably and fairly. Thank you so much to DA Harrington for joining me today to talk about the initiative. So what exactly is the plea tracker project and how does it work?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Shira. It's really exciting for me to be on the the podcast and have an opportunity to talk about some of the innovative work that we're doing around prosecution here in Berkshire County. Uh, The Plea Tracker Project is an amazing opportunity Opportunity for a small office in Western Massachusetts to be involved in because it's really a project, I think, of national significance. Uh, my office is the first district attorney's office in the country to actually gather you know, detailed information about how pleas are negotiated and how they're actually the outcomes that occur in the courts and as you said, you know, 95% of all criminal cases are resolved by way of plea. So we were really lucky to be able to partner with the Wilson Center to do this really deep dive into how the plea process works. And this is going to allow us to see, you know, if we're, being fair and equitable and influence, you know, our policies and how we can use prosecution to best lead to public safety and public health in our community. But it's also going to, I think, be a basis for establishing best practices for prosecutors from all over the country.
0: So practically, how does it work? What do your attorneys have to do to track their players?
1: Yeah, we have a Qualtrics survey. It's a very detailed survey that our prosecutors Are completing in every case that is resolved by a plea um, in district court and in superior court for an entire year. So um, we have a section that like staff members can can fill in kind of basic information, but then we have a section that ADAs have to fill in because it requires them to give their motivations and their impressions and their reasons for why they made the recommendations that they did.
0: So give me an example. What type of case would a plea be used in and what types of things specifically would be recorded in this plea tracker system?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, cases, we have cases in district court and superior court. So, I mean, we have cases that are um, maybe more like lower level type cases. Um, Maybe it could be a plea is entered. It could be like in an, breaking and entering case or an assault and battery case. Um, all kinds of cases can be resolved by plea. There can be cases that are um, drug trafficking cases or even, you know, sexual assault cases can be resolved up by a plea. And the kind of information that the prosecutors enter is, um, like they'll enter information about like the defendant's criminal history. Um, you know, obviously like basic information about like the who the defendant is demographic information um there's if we were really interested in the the role of victims um and we're very we're a victim-centered office so we entered detailed information about you know was the victim contacted did they weigh in did they do a victim impact statement did the victim you know was how we have like a measure of how harmed the victim was by the crime. We have information about how much uh, information we had from the defense, how much communication we had from the defense. Um, We have information about like, were there um, uh, rehabilitative options? Was there maybe a lack of rehabilitative options? Whereas if the prosecutor had had more different kinds of options? Would it have been a different outcome? We have information um, also about the the demographic information on the victim. We're really interested in particular how race can or socioeconomic factors can can play a role in how cases are resolved vis-a-vis the victim. We also have information about the role of judges. In Massachusetts, judges have a little bit more say and how cases are resolved by plea than maybe in some other states. So, you know, it was very important to have an understanding, you know, did the judge accept what was offered? Did they do something different? Um, Yeah, so those are like the basic outlines of the kinds of things that we're tracking. And have
0: you gotten any results from the study so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we were given some initial results. Like, for example, we got some results that showed that our contact with the victims was really strong, and in a vast, vast majority of our cases, we you know at least you know reached out to the victim and you know made sure that we sought their input. Um, and there certainly are some cases that you know victims don't want to participate on, but that was really helpful information for my office. We also got some initial information about um, that showed that when we do probation, there's a high correlation between offering a probation sentence and some kind of uh, therapeutic uh, programming that corresponds with the probation, and that the the people that tended to get probation with like a therapeutic response tended to be people who, who like, this was not their first time in the court system. Uh, it was people that had, you know, had some like recidivism. So that was very interesting for us to, to see. And right now the, I mean, the, the people we're working with at Duke are incredibly smart and they're, they are able to t- take this information and t- make it, really meaningful. And so right now they're working on a six month review that we expect to be getting um, in January. They're going through a process of like going through all of the data and determining what it means.
0: So let's say you get this information. It shows that for people on probation who are also receiving therapeutic services, they are people with a history of recidivism or contact with the criminal justice system. Why is that information important? What are you going to do with it?
1: Um, I would say that it's um, important because to me, like, I think it means that we're doing something that is appropriate. Um, I think that this kind of, to me, it means that to a certain extent, our training and the things that I say that we're doing is actually working and that we're following through on that because our approach is to, um, um, give people I think the kind of um, touch that is required for public safety like in my office we are similar to the Suffolk DA's office and that we don't we, we have a presumption of not prosecuting really low level cases like um, you know drug possession a lot of traffic offenses um, we generally, unless there's extenuating circumstances, we just dismiss those outright. And we really wanna put the focus on people that could kind of need that level of supervision in the court system. And we also wanna make sure that we're not just being punitive, that we're giving people opportunities and pathways to you know, address those underlying issues as to why they came into the court system. Um, so, I mean, to me, it's an opportunity to show that what we're doing um, is we're doing the things that I say that we're doing. And, you know, it, you know, I, I don't know that this particular information is going to be able to track like long-term outcomes of what happens with these folks, but I could see potentially, you know, maybe taking this information and kind of using it as a basis to track those long-term outcomes in the future, which I think um, is really critical because, you know, We've been, having, we've been using the same system for a long time and not knowing how effective it is, and we need to show that what we're doing is effective and um, that we're following good policy that actually helps people.
0: So one of the biggest concerns that I've heard about plea deals is consistency and the potential for racial bias, um, because there's not really any way to ensure that different defendants are given the same offers for the same conduct regardless of factors like race or socioeconomic class. Have you been finding any evidence of racial or class bias? And is that something that you're looking for?
1: Yeah, so this is one of our uh, primary objectives is to show, it so that we can actually see how our decision-making, um, we can see the if, if it's biased, right? Because, um, you know, I think, in, intuitively and from my experience in the justice system from a lot of people's experience in the justice system and the other kind of data points that we've been able to to pull together as a state uh we know that uh people of color black people latinx people are receive harsher sentences um there was the study that was commissioned by chief justice gants that harvard did that showed that Black people and Latinx people get more days incarcerated than their white counterparts, even when you account for the severity of the crime and when you account for um, like zip codes and different kinds of differences. So 95% of those cases were resolved by plea. So we know that racial disparities come out in the plea process because prosecutors have a lot of discretion. And and I don't think it's just prosecutors. I think it's the way victims maybe perceive conduct and report conduct. It's it's about like what police officers put in their police reports. It's about how prosecutors interpret the results. It's about how judges perceive these things. So it's a systemic wide issue, but my approach to racial justice and ending the scourge of racial disparities in the justice system is to lead by example. So. I am making a statement that we are going to you know, track our decision-making as, and we're going to include demographic information like race, and we're going to take a hard look at ourselves uh, to see what we are doing to perpetuate these disparities. I know that we're going to see racial disparities. There's no way we cannot. I mean, they exist throughout the entire system. And what I'm asking people is, you know, it takes courage to, to track this stuff and to put it out there and to let people know what you're doing, um, but we can't fix what we don't measure. So what I'm really asking people is to, um, you know, recognize that and to, you know, we need to, to work together as a system to address the racial disparities that I know are going to be there.
0: So based on some of these preliminary results that you've seen, have you found evidence in there of racial disparities or of practices that could be improved on?
1: Um, the researchers, I, I we I haven't, no, I have not seen that yet. The researchers really wanted to make sure that they had a large data sample um, so that what they were reflecting was um, meaningful and accurate. So they have not shared that kind of demographic information with my office as of yet. But in our six month report, um, I'm anticipating that it's going to be broken down by race. Yeah. When did you start this project? Um, I think we started collecting data. I wanna say we started collecting the data in March. We've been working on the project for quite some time. It was a pretty lengthy process because they created the survey that was really um, specific to our office's needs and to the Massachusetts um, legal system. It was a little bit of time for that, for the researchers to kind of understand that and and design the questions so that it measured what we needed to measure and that they had all of the correct terminology and everything down. because each state has a slightly different system. So, um, I know like our, our six month, um, anniversary came up in like October, I think. And so they're now like taking that and like crunching all of these numbers and are going to come out with this report that they're supposed to give us in January.
0: And how long do you plan to participate in this?
1: So it's a year long study. And, you know, the, the, I think the researchers were, um, actually really uh, surprised by how quickly our prosecutors and staff can get through the survey. I think the average length of time that it takes to complete each survey is really, it's about five minutes once the, you know, prosecutors kind of get the hang of it. And, you know, what started really as the idea that this was going to be like a one-time kind of deep dive, I think that the researchers are interested in maybe making this more of a, um, kind of a, normal practice for prosecutors' offices to collect this kind of information on an ongoing basis.
0: And I know that when the project was launched, there was some discussion about that just the fact of having the attorneys have to enter this information might actually change their behavior, that if there had been any kind of even unconscious bias going on or whatever it is, the fact of them knowing that this information was going to be reported might affect their process of entering into the plea negotiations Have you seen any impact on your attorneys just from the process of entering this data?
1: Yeah, I was really interested in that. And there's a term for that. They call it friction. The researchers call that process friction, which I was fascinated by. And I do think that it has um, made our prosecutors think about their decision making differently. Within the office, we have a, a racial justice group that is digging in and looking at how do we you know, develop clear prosecution policies that address the problems of racial bias and racial disparities. And since, so that has corresponded with our participation in this project. And one of the things that they've been talking about is for prosecutors, when they read a police report, do they first look at the um, kind of the, the demographic information about the defendant? Do they look to see what the race of the defendant is or do first so that when they read the report, they have that in mind, or do they read the report first and like just, you know, try to, you know, kind of, you know, this is fiction that, um, that we're colorblind, right? And so people, I think that the old way that people were taught to do things was to just base things on the facts that are in the police report. But now we're starting to have a deeper understanding that the way that people interact with the police and the kind of facts that end up in a police report can very much be impacted by a person's race. So we've had these conversations within the office that I think are really meaningful to the way we make our decisions. Well, we've been like also working on this plea tracker and like tracking You know how we make our decisions, so I think all these things kind of flow in together to make prosecutors maybe think about their decision making in a different way.
0: And will you make the results public on how your
1: office is doing? We will um, certainly make anything public that we're allowed to make public. um, You know, based on privacy laws, and you know, based on what we legally can share, Um, we did have a meeting with the Boston Globe editorial board they were very interested in seeing our data Um, you know we're open to sharing with that it the data would be aggregated to prevent uh, to protect people's uh, privacy we're prohibited from like sharing what would be considered like quarry information which is information about people's criminal records
0: and on that note, I know you mentioned your no prosecute list. Um, similar to what Rachel Rollins has in Suffolk County, how has that been going, and have you been getting any sense of what impact that has had on you know public safety?
1: Yeah. Uh, so um, we have um, dismissed you know thousands of cases over the past almost three years. That uh, many thousands of cases since I've been in office, that is a big shift from what was happening previously. And, you know, I can just say generally the feedback from the judges in particular is very powerful, is is very positive. Um, You know, there was a sense that the dockets and the work of the courts was really kind of getting like clogged down, clogged up and by these really low level offenses that the courts just don't have good tools to address. And that tend to just be um, you know, really difficult for people that you know are already in tough circumstances to be hauled into court, take time away from work and family, And there's a lot of like shame and stigma around being in in the court system. And I'm not talking like really low level, like nonviolent offenses. Um, So the feedback from the judges has been very positive. Um, You know, I think that there's a misunderstanding in the community about the role of the courts and what the courts actually are able to do, because, you know, I was a, I was a, defense attorney practicing here for many years before I was the DA. And, you know, the the court system is just very harmful for people that are dealing with mental illness and substance use disorder and struggling with the impacts of poverty. And you see a little bit of that happening now with this light that's being shined on what's happening at Mass and Cass and with those courts there. Like, I think that is very emblematic of the kinds of things that happen in district court. we're very much, you know, we want a public health approach to public health problems. So part of what we're trying to do is get policing and prosecution out of the way um, and get those people that need public health assistance into that system and people that like don't necessarily need anything just, you know, to be left alone and not have to deal with the um, just the hassle that a court process presents. Um, I think we're starting to see more a lot alignment in the community around this approach. Um, I think we are a little bit ahead of the curve on kind of understanding this. There's now discussion here in Pittsfield about bringing this Chelsea hub model, which we can talk about. There's a lot more interest in diverting people to like social workers who have these just, you know, social public health issues that are causing them to have interactions with the, with the police and the courts. So I think we've been ahead of the curve, but I think people are starting to come along. And I really haven't heard any specific complaints from, I haven't heard any complaints from business owners about not prosecuting shoplifting. I haven't heard any complaints um, really from anybody about the decisions that we've been making in terms of um, dismissing low-level cases.
0: And what is that Chelsea Hope model that you refer to?
1: Yeah, so um, this is a model where um, there is a, basically, like what the Pittsfield Police Department has found, and I'm paraphrasing the numbers, but it's something like, you know, there's 30 people in Pittsfield that that cause um, 80% of the calls to the police department, right? So there's, and those numbers are totally generalized, but just the idea that there is a relatively small group of people that is taking up like a lot of the time and attention from law enforcement. And so the Chelsea Hub model is a a model that pulls together different parts of the community, like like more social workers and mental health people and people that can provide more like of a holistic response along with law enforcement to kind of take a look at what's happening with these particular individuals that seem to be high need so that they can do more kind of positive therapeutic interventions um, so that it doesn't get to like a crisis situation where the police are being called. Um, So our community is just starting to explore that now. We had some like recent complaints about, you know, people here on North street in Pittsfield, which is like the main drag in Pittsfield that, um, you know, are engaging in behavior that the business community doesn't really love in their downtown. Um, and that, so there was some frustration with some of those kinds of Behaviors, But the call wasn't for more policing and prosecution. What people were talking about was wanting social workers to come out and to address the problematic behavior. So I think we're starting to see like a shift where people expect law enforcement to address these kinds of, you know, lower level, nonviolent kind of ac- actions um, as opposed, you know, they, they want people understand that the policing and prosecuting this stuff really hasn't worked very well.
0: Yeah, definitely a cultural shift statewide, I think we're seeing. <laughs> um, so while, while you're here, I want to just touch on a couple of other topics quickly before we wrap up. Um, you took the unusual step last summer of trying to actually remove a local judge, Jennifer Tyne, from the bench. You complained to the chief justice about her dangerous rulings and hostile treatment of victims and prosecutors. A group of defense attorneys called your behavior unethical, and the chief justice ultimately found no evidence of impropriety. Can you comment on why you tried to have Judge Chime removed? Uh,
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the reporting on that was not totally accurate. You know, judges have lifetime appointments and, you know, very little accountability to the, the community that they serve. And that's just the way the system is set up. And so if there's, you know, if I see a pattern of conduct from a judge that um, I'm concerned about and I think undermines public safety and I think is not fair and just to the people that I serve, I really have a few options. And the option that I selected was really, I think the the softest option, which was to raise my concerns with the uh, chief justice um, so that they were aware and could act on them how they wish to act on them and you know it's limited options what i was requesting was that the judge be reassigned to a different um jurisdiction so you know i will always stick up for victims of crime and i'm always going to stick up for the people who work in this office who um i believe are being mistreated and our our deep concern was that decisions were being motivated by who was asking for things um, to happen as opposed to what really made sense for public safety and for the safety of victims. And I will always, I will always, you know, stick up for the underdog. Um, In terms, you know, I think that I've repaired that relationship with the defense bar. I was a member of MACDL. Um, I have a lot of respect for the organization. And, you know, I... Certainly. And and I've had concerns um, that have arisen since then. And what I've done is I've gone to my um, colleagues in the defense bar and raised them and talked to them. So I think that the communication piece there is really critical. And I'm happy that we've been able to establish those lines of communication.
0: Finally, are you running for re-election
1: next year? Uh, I have not made any official announcements about uh, re-election for next year, um, but you know, I, I promised the people here in Berkshire County that I would build a modern district attorney's office that uh, appropriately you know, put resources and was aggressive uh, uh, against violent crime and work for public safety, while also you know building a public health model for like mental health issues and substance use disorder and you know with the COVID and the impacts and you're seeing this increase in mental health problems and in substance use disorder issues and fatal overdoses you know I think that those things are needed now more than ever and we have a lot more work left to do.
0: And you can read more on commonwealthmagazine.org Berkshire District Attorney Andrea Harrington thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me Shira it's great to be here.